Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 153, Manchurian Goodbye. Following the Central Plains War and the last big reckoning of the warlords over the course of 1930, there was the traditional settling of the dust as everybody looked towards what the new future would bring. Many of the warlords still held sway over their little dominions, although none could now dare openly challenge Chiang Kai-shek's status as the leader of China. But the conflict had stung Chiang almost as much as it had his rivals, and to say that there were any big winners of the Central Plains War would have been badly inaccurate. Well, except for Zhang Zhulang, who had picked up northern China to add to his Manchurian sphere of control, but he was just coming off a bad thrashing of his own as a result of his tangle with the Soviets back in 1929, which I just covered last week if you haven't already given the episode a listen. For Chang, the war had come uncomfortably close to disaster and revealed his own shaky standing as the leader of the Kuomintang. His cronies in the political study and CC cliques might have expanded his influence over the actual running of the government, but they were corrupt as all hell and both treated the government as their own personal piggy bank, exploiting their connections for personal benefit at every turn. And the people quickly picked up on this and turned against Chang. The coalition against him during the Plains War quickly garnered enthusiastic support despite being dominated by the same kinds of warlords the public had grown to despise. The difference was that many of Chang's political rivals, chief among them Wang Jingwei, joined with the coalition and provided handy political cover. While by the fall of 1930 the tides of war had turned against the coalition, Wang was able to publish a proposed formal constitution for Kuomintang China. The contents don't really matter as they were never close to being implemented, but the move represented a breach in KMT orthodoxy as the establishment of a working constitution should only have been done after the political tutelage period was finished. The idea had been established by Sun Yat-sen years previously, and the reasoning was that only after the public had been educated and acquired political experience would it be ready to have a say in how the government would be composed. Remember, while a liberal democracy was never going to be a reality in nationalist China, that was the stated goal. A premature constitution would mean that the guiding document of the reborn China would be composed by a thin band of elites and could ultimately prove alienating to the public as a whole. Because if only a thin band of elites had sufficient political sophistication to participate in the process of making it, guess to whose advantage the resulting document would play to? By October 1930, though, Wang's faction had already clearly lost, and realistically, he was probably looking to force Cheng to overreact instead of create a viable document himself. And that's exactly what Cheng did. Cheng opted to meet Wang's proposed constitution with one of his own making, or at least a placeholder of some kind. Also in October, very quickly after Wang threw down his gauntlet, he ordered the convening of a national assembly to create a provisional constitution that would only cover the political tutelage phase of government. The provisional aspect would give him some cover, as planned obsolescence with a finalized version of a constitution sometime in the future was right there in the name. The problem was that one very important member of the Kuomintang decided that was the breaking point and decided to act publicly against Chiang. Hu Hanmin is a name I haven't mentioned yet, but he has been there this whole time, and was one of Sun Yat-sen's oldest disciples. 
He was a dedicated man of the KMT party and a political scientist, so he didn't really have much to do with all the battles and intriguing. But it was recognized that between everybody, he understood Soon's intentions the best. And Hu saw very clearly what Cheng was doing and said, no more. Hu didn't like the way the military had become the most important instrument of the state, and how Beijing and the North in general had been ceded over to Zhang in order to secure his loyalty. Hu recognized that if Cheng was allowed to form a constitution, it would almost certainly act to legalize his military rule and secure his own dominance of the government, to the detriment of the rest of the country and even the KMT as a political party. That the provisional constitution was being pushed only by Cheng and his supporters, with scarcely any public debate, only seemed to confirm these fears. Hu publicly declared that the new constitution would be going against Soon's vision and resigned from his position as head of the nation's legislature. Their dispute lasted for months. Finally, at the end of February 1931, Cheng ordered Hu to be arrested. He would explain away the arrest by saying, it is only in this way that his glorious past may be preserved intact, which I don't think is correct, and neither did anyone else. He was released from custody in fairly short order, but that just caused him to flee south and out of Chang's grasp, which you really can't blame him for that. The arrest of Hu set off a political firestorm that would last until the autumn of 1931 and actually came close to forcing Chang from power. It was, ironically, the threat of Japanese attack in the wake of the Manchurian invasion that saved him. The warlord commander of Guangdong province, Chen Jitang, had been growing apprehensive over Cheng's power since the Central Plains War. Chen had risen to command the province's local army units later in the Northern Expedition and had stayed on after the main NRA force had passed northwards. When the Guangxi clique caused trouble in the years afterwards and provoked Cheng to force them back to their home bases, he slid right into the commander's seat of what had been the territorial springboard of the Kuomintang. He remained loyal, enough to the Nanjing government, resisting the Guangxi clique's attempted invasion of his province in 1930, but in no uncertain terms wanted to keep his spoils to himself. And the prospect of dissenters like Hu being arrested and rubber-stamped constitutions being implemented set off alarm bells. Chen began to openly present himself as a new center of resistance to the regime, and the predictable cast of characters, namely Wang Jingwei and the Guangxi clique, flocked to his banner and established a southern counter-government in Guangzhou. This was all a really bad time for Chang and the Nanjing government. The last war had badly depleted the army, and the concessions made to Zhang in the north couldn't be repeated to maintain his loyalty. Yan Jishan probably wasn't a factor as he was still smarting from his defeat, and Fang was effectively out of the game. But Guangdong was a big, populous, wealthy province that also enjoyed defensible terrain. The same reason Sun Yat-sen had gravitated towards there when looking for a home base, and why successive northern governments couldn't bring the region in line. Plus, separating Cheng's central provinces and Guangdong were belts of warlord-held areas of dubious loyalty to Nanjing, not to mention communist base camps that had sprung up in the mountains of the country south. Which, speaking of those communist base camps, they didn't go unnoticed by Cheng. He had never forgotten his, uh old comrades, and was determined to finish the job he had started with his purge in April 1927. 
The problem was making sure the warlords weren't around to challenge him while his forces were tromping around the backcountry of the Guangxi and Hunan provinces. I'll get a bit more into the specifics about what the communists had been up to since 1928 later on in this series, but for now just know that they had been steadily building up their base camps in the defensible mountain regions of China's south. I will, though, break down why they were such a threat to the KMT and how they would come to dominate Cheng's calculations. These were not just military positions, but entire communities organized along Marxist lines, wholly reshaped from what had come before, and that meant getting rid of the landlord class that exacted rents from the farmers. Those laborers would work towards communal benefits and not have to pay rents on the very land they worked to distant gentry. This was a big problem for the conservative Nanjing government. One of its pillars of power was cooperation with landholders as a means to ensure the tranquility of the countryside. If the peasants all of a sudden got it in their heads that they could just take the land and work it with no payments to the actual landholders, well, that meant a mechanism of government control was lost. Remember, the Kuomintang mostly governed the urban areas of the country. There simply weren't enough resources available to extend the government's reach into the vast rural expanses. The landholders would be the de facto government of those places. You might remember from last season how the left KMT had worked with the communists to organize the peasants and force concessions from the landholders. Those days were well and truly gone. And issues in the countryside pretty much haunted the KMT from the very start of the Nanjing decade. All over the country, there were problems of droughts, floods, or an alternation between the two. Farmers all over were hit hard and crop yields were down. And the fact that many productive areas became battlefields in no way helped matters. The KMT didn't really have an answer. Again, there just weren't sufficient resources to deploy relief, even if the ideological will had been there. With food shortages, there of course came discontent, as farmers couldn't grow enough to both provide for their families and pay the landlords at the same time. This was a big problem, but the Nanjing government lacked the imagination to try anything beyond reinforcing the landholders' positions as pillars of the rural communities. This was indicative of an old and ultimately self-destructive prejudice among the well-to-do in China that existed well before the KMT and which the rival CPC would exploit at every turn. Among most educated Chinese, farmers were held in a special kind of contempt. Farmers were everything a respectable Chinese leader shouldn't be. A farmer was uneducated. They didn't look past their farms or villages. Their manners were poor. They lacked a developed culture. The well-to-do were urbane and educated in worldly affairs and were especially knowledgeable in topics like political science, philosophy, and law, things that the old examination system used by the imperial Chinese dynasties to test their prospective bureaucrats encouraged. A vanishingly small slice of the KMT membership, and we're talking like a few percentage points here, had any experience or education in agriculture. It simply wasn't work that was considered worth pursuing. I touched on this last season, but this was the direct result of the purge of the CPC and the marginalization of the left KMT. There was no champion of the peasants, who, by the way, made up over four-fifths of the population. The CPC actually almost fell prey to this same line of thought. Uh, they wanted an urban revolution, that was the Marxist way, but largely thanks to Mao, the potential of the peasants was given a chance to prove itself. 
which made it all the more urgent to get those peasants back in line. Chang recognized that the CPC base camps were in rugged, isolated areas, but if left unchecked, they'd spread their influence to places that, you know, actually mattered. The fledgling Red Army of China was still small, poorly trained and ill-equipped, but their troops were willing to fight and die against much greater numbers. And that they were fighting an asymmetrical war helped even the odds considerably. The local provincial troops, flying the KMT flag but still retaining the character of warlord armies, were badly ineffectual against them. So, Chang would have to go down south with his elite troops and take care of business personally. Well, okay, he'd eventually head down to take care of business personally. Between late autumn 1930 and autumn 1931, there were three so-called encirclement campaigns. I'm only going to touch on them here as they'll be a big part of the narrative next week. The encirclement campaigns were exactly what they sounded like. Massive NRA forces would surround the CPC base camps and push inwards, cutting off the Red Army's ability to flee and overwhelming them. That was the theory, anyway. In especially the first two campaigns, things did not at all go according to plan. The first, launched in November 1930, just as the Central Plains War was winding down, was assigned to the local governor of Jiangxi province. He was assigned over 100,000 men and ordered to take down the 20,000-strong Red Army in his province. Turned out, the local NRA troops were woefully ill-prepared to fight in the rugged mountains and forests of the region. They failed to effectively establish a cordon around the Jiangxi base camp that served as Mao's home base and where the Red Army operated freely. The demoralized NRA formations fell apart over the winter, and around half of the expedition were killed or captured. One of the divisional officers was himself captured and beheaded, just a little message to Chang that this wasn't going to be like fighting the warlords. On the next attempt, Chang in April 1931 sent in 200,000 soldiers, primarily veterans of Feng Yuzhang's army that had gone over to his service. While these soldiers were far more experienced than the ones employed in the first encirclement campaign, their experience had been the dusty hills and temperate plains of northern China. The commander was a general named He Yingchen, once a prominent commander in the NRA, but he had suffered a falling out with Chang during the northern expedition. When Chang's rivals in August 1927 had forced him to temporarily resign in a bid to forestall his rise to power, he had stood outside and failed to defend his boss. Chang didn't get rid of him once back in power, but he was shunted off to minor roles managing some of the, you know, pettier warlords. This campaign was He's chance to get back in Chang's good graces. It didn't work out, though. The south of the country was a whole different ballgame for the northern troops, and they too failed to force the Red Army into a confrontation on their terms. Again, the NRA forces were bogged down in guerrilla fighting in a hostile patch of country. This time, the tables turned even faster, with the initial offensive starting on April 1st, 1931, and ending in disaster by the end of May. Basically, the communists managed to ambush and destroy a supposedly powerful unit of NRA troops in the mountains, and they descended on troops further to the rear, creating a panic and sending the entire force packing. 30,000 men were lost, and Chang despaired of getting rid of the Red Army. The Generalissimo arrived in the city of Nanchang to take charge on June 21st. With him came 130,000 of his personal troops, the best in his army. The third encirclement campaign quickly commenced, and it was as bad as ever, with the NRA again taking tens of thousands of casualties as the summer progressed. The communists, though, were also growing exhausted by that time, and Chang was perfectly willing to wear down his foe regardless of loss. 
And then after that, he'd turn his attentions to Chen's southern alliance, which, while not yet openly hostile, was lurking just to Jiangxi's south. Little did Chiang Kai-shek realize that there was a clock ticking away, and the brief window where he held the initiative was set to run out. On September 18, 1931, the Japanese Kwangtong Army incited the Mukden incident that I covered last miniseries, and almost overnight, the entire situation changed for China. The Japanese had watched Zhang get clobbered by the Soviets in 1929 and realized that an invasion was feasible, and then in 1930 watched the core of the NRA get pushed to the brink by a motley, albeit large, collection of warlords. The time seemed ripe for them to secure Manchuria before Chiang could consolidate China and turn the whole of the nation against them. In the early 30s, Japan had the advantage over China, but the aggressive officer corps perceived that the scales would shift if China was left alone to develop and reform itself, which, to be fair, was a correct assessment. Just that the conclusion of a military intervention being the solution was ultimately, uh, overambitious. It certainly looked like Chiang would integrate the Northeast if he was left to his own devices. Zhang had ceded his unofficial right to negotiate agreements with foreign entities after the disastrous 1929 campaign, he was welcoming KMT branches to be opened on his territory to act as counterweights to unreliable local officers, and Nanjing and Zhang both were deeply invested in creating a transportation network adjacent to and independent of both the Japanese and Soviet railways. There was tangible pressure on the Japanese position in the region. What was a little less tangible was that also the Japanese assertion that China's hostility had deprived Japan of many of its customers, making its economic depression all the worse. Which was a whole load of garbage. Individual Chinese were simply exercising their right to not do business with an exploitive and predatory neighbor. And besides, crying about how people just weren't buying enough imports is never a convincing argument for a land invasion. The Japanese, though, believed it all wasn't fair, and it formed a big part of their justification for invading northeast China. The initial moves of the Japanese invasion were purely along the railways already controlled by Japan, so Chiang's first reaction was a policy of non-resistance, one that Zhang went along with. Neither man relished the idea of tangling with the Japanese army, and in those first weeks and months of the invasion, they weren't actually sure what the Japanese intentions really were. The Kwantung army appeared to be running wild, while Tokyo was insisting that the invasion was effectively an expanded police action. A temporary one at that. What the Nanjing government wasn't privy to was that the officers in Manchuria were in the driver's seat, and the government in Tokyo couldn't stop them. And so, despite hopes that the Japanese would eventually de-escalate and come to the table, the invasion rolled on and expanded into the greater region of Manchuria, away from even the Japanese-controlled railway areas. Zhang pursued a strategy of trying to use international pressure to make the Japanese back off, but that proved to be a non-starter. The world at large had failed to intervene in the 1929 war with the Soviets, and while this was a much more game-changing affair, they weren't about to do much more here either. Chiang made his appeals to the League of Nations, and the Leiden Commission was duly sent into northeast China to assess the situation. Their investigation would take time, though, and the results would be uncertain. We already know they wouldn't result in anything that actually helped China, but it is important to keep in mind that for over a year, there was hope that it would. When that failed to materialize, the West was discredited yet again. Even while he committed to non-engagement, Chiang wasn't stupid enough to totally ignore the situation, and threatened to redeploy his army to Manchuria and escalate the war into a full-blown conflict. 
This was no idle threat either. The Third Encirclement campaign had been called off, and troops were returned to their bases further north. Meanwhile, the Southern Alliance dropped their disputes with Chang for the sake of resisting the Japanese. They fully expected that the invasion would force a greater war, and agreed to rally to the Nanjing flag. Chen Jitang and Wang Jingwei abandoned their attempts at pushing a counter-government and instead offered to reconcile to fight the greater threat. Silver lining to the invasion for Chang, I guess, was that his most ardent rivals in the Kuomintang gave up their fight against him. His big problem was that the non-resistance policy was immensely unpopular with the people. It took a lot to truly rile up the masses of Chinese citizens into open action, but the threshold had been reached and surpassed and then some. Part of the reasons why the warlords were suddenly so willing to work with Chang and vice versa was because public opinion was so outraged against the Japanese that they had to be the main focus. The questions of a provisional constitution, state power, and what to do about the communists all had to wait for a little bit. They wanted a fight, but Chang refused to throw his army into what would almost certainly be its doom engaging with the Japanese. The best he could summon was a national boycott on trade with Japan, which was unsatisfactory to the public opinion, to say the least, but did serve to scare the hell out of the Japanese, whose biggest trading partner was China. Demonstrations were a daily fact in Nanjing, and students especially traveled into the capital to make their voices heard. And when Chiang continued to decline pursuing a military response, their protests turned specifically against him, and crowds began hounding government officials, even attacking them in some cases. Wang and Hu Hanmin had met with Chang in mid-October in Shanghai and asked him to resign, something that Chang had already considered himself. Eventually, the two wings of the KMT, the one based in Nanjing and the other in Guangzhou, finally held a joint congress in Shanghai in December. For the sake of the nation and the party, Chang was induced to resign almost all his posts on December 15th. The only one he kept was his spot on the Central Executive Committee of the party. He returned to his hometown of Jiku and settled into apparent retirement. I say apparent because like his past resignations, this one wasn't destined to last long. The newly unified government had been placed in the hands of Sun Fo, the son of Sun Yat-sen. The younger Sun didn't command the same loyalty as his father, though, and within weeks it was obvious the new arrangement wasn't going to work. The core NRA generals were still loyal only to Chang, and they reported to him that government finances were already breaking down. Government revenues had fallen by 15%, and even before then, they had proven incapable of supporting its own running expenses. Army paychecks were starting to be missed, and that was dangerous for everybody. The CC clique declined to throw its weight behind soon, and so the Shanghai financiers that the government depended on started withholding funds they had been willing to extend to Chang. Soon quickly realized he wasn't the guy, and organized a sit-down with Chang and Wang. They met on January 18, 1932, in the city of Hangzhou. Chang was smart enough to realize that popular opinion wouldn't allow him to just slide back into power, and was willing to compromise somewhat. A deal was struck, and on the 21st, the three traveled to Nanjing together. On the 25th, Soon and his cabinet resigned. Three days later, Wang took up the vacated position of the presidency, and the next day, Chang assumed leadership of a newly reformed Military Affairs Commission, the MAC. On paper, Wang would be the leader of the government. But, on account of his control of the army and with the support of the various cliques in the bureaucracy, Chang would be the one running the show. 
he would rule through the regional army field headquarters that had been established across the country. Uh, The phrase army field headquarters might conjure up images of massive clusters of tents with army officers hunched over desks, manning radios, or poring over maps. Well, there certainly were those things, but they weren't often intense and were far more extensive. These regional headquarters were assigned clusters of provinces and officially were there to manage military affairs within those boundaries. In actual practice, their influence extended far deeper, and in addition to commanding the NRA presence in their districts, they also oversaw both government activity and the affairs of the KMT party. The field headquarters reported solely to Chang, so in effect he was again dictator, despite Wang being appointed the head of government and therefore a public face comparable to Chang. And just in case you're wondering what the point of a central government was in such a system, keep in mind that the NRA might have been overseeing and managing things, but the actual day-to-day work was still carried out by the bureaucracy. It was just that for it to function, Chang had to give his consent. This actually would become a huge problem, as the ministries oftentimes only functioned when Chang provided his undivided attention to any given project. If the Generalissimo wanted it done, then it would be seen to. Maybe not competently, and certainly not in a 100% above-board manner, but there would be some energy to carrying out the orders. If Chang didn't care too much, then the government work oftentimes just didn't get done. And Chang was badly distracted by foreign events at the start of 1932. The negotiations for his return to power happened against the backdrop of the Japanese buildup off the coast of Shanghai. As I covered back in episode 145, on January 18th, a group of Japanese Buddhist priests following a militant sect provoked a group of Chinese factory men outside their place of work. The priests were attacked, and a counter-mob of Japanese burned down the factory, with several dying in the clashes and in the police response to the rioting. The Chinese thereafter enforced a local boycott on Japanese goods, imperiling that nation's interests in the city. On the 28th, some Chinese soldiers opened fire on Japanese sailors, which the Japanese, being masters of de-escalation, responded to with troop landings and mobilizing the Marines already in the city. Opposing the attackers was the 19th Root Army, which previously had not enjoyed a terribly good reputation and was viewed by the leading figures in Shanghai as more of a liability than an asset. They were basically a warlord army hanging around to collect a paycheck. But, surprise, surprise, they went toe-to-toe with the Japanese and forced the invaders to commit tens of thousands more troops in a battle that lasted for over a month. Only through through their control of the air and sea did Japan finally prevail over the defenders. For Cheng, the battle had not been one he wanted to fight. When he had returned to power, he had gone right back to his non-resistance policy, and it was mainly because the 19th Root Army forced a confrontation just before his return that the fighting took place at all. And once the battle was joined, uh, there really wasn't a lot of wiggle room for Cheng to, you know, just retreat. That would have destroyed his credibility. Instead, he was compelled to send in many of his own best troops to reinforce the 19th Root Army, which proved critical to meeting the Japanese' own reinforcements after mid-February. It was only after the Japanese breakthrough on March 1st that Cheng felt comfortable going to the table. Once again, he was given a bitter pill to swallow. The Shanghai ceasefire would bar the NRA from Shanghai, while allowing the Japanese to maintain their own military presence. It was a clear defeat, but one that Cheng felt was justified to prevent the war from escalating further. The entire situation would understandably change the trajectory of Cheng's rule in China forever. In the years following the Northern Expedition, he had been able to focus entirely on internal Chinese affairs, and that meant taking his time dealing with warlords and political rivals. 
The Japanese interventions after September 1931 placed new pressures on him and effectively created a countdown that he wasn't really certain how long would actually last, but he was fully aware of. The Japanese' actions were so brazen that it demanded a response, as public opinion was irrevocably turned against the invaders. Long-term, the KMT simply could not coexist with the Japanese Empire. The Kuomintang ideology was broad, but developing China into a modern state that could stand on on its own, free of foreign interference, was a very clear, extremely core objective. And that empowerment was what really drew people to the KMT banner. Foreign domination of huge chunks of the country was unacceptable. But Chiang was prepared to play a dangerous game and stall the coming war for as long as possible. Manchuria had been lost, but that wasn't where his power base was anyway, and if anything, events had forced Zhang and the other warlords further into dependence on him. The course of action moving forward would be twofold. Chiang sought to build up the economy of the nation, as he fully understood that a bigger industrial base meant both greater access to material resources, less dependence on foreign purchases, and additional money flowing in to expand and modernize his army. The second prong would be further binding the nation closer to Nanjing, the most obvious aspect of that would be return to campaigning against the communists. And if that sounds like an odd set of priorities with the Japanese running roughshod, a lot of people thought that too, and the anti-communist campaigns were not terribly popular. Chinese should be unifying against the Japanese, not fighting each other. But Chang was adamant that he could never confront the Japanese with the CPC prowling behind his back, saying that the Japanese are a disease of the skin, the communists a disease of the soul. The fight against the communists would also serve as handy pretexts to going into the provinces and asserting Nanjing's control and local authorities, which was an unspoken goal, but clear enough to everyone involved. The renewed campaigns against the communists are where we'll pick up next week, so join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 